The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. David, I'm starting to think there's a mole at MI6. What? Sure hope it's not some creepy KGB spymaster. <laughs> the year is 1965 and the Cold War, baby, it's a cooking. Todd, do you like pork bench scenes? Because I know I do. Are you talking about, like, uh, where two dudes sit at a park bench and pretend they don't know each other and just kind of talk out of the sides of their mouths at each other and talk about spy stuff? Absolutely. Like, Michael Keaton and Alfred Molina locking horns, baby. It's the Pickle Factory. Cockroach Alley. The CIA. With exactly three more scenes of two spies sitting at a park bench than in all the Aliens movies combined. David! Are we here today to talk about the company? Yes, we are. Shall we begin? Let's begin. A best-selling novel of the same name leads cable network TNT XX to greenlight a four-and-a-half-hour miniseries that explores the early years of the CIA. Big Shot producers Ridley Scott and brother Tony Scott bring some name recognition to the table with Michael Keaton, Alfred Molina, and what probably looked like a safe bet at the time, Chris O'Donnell. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like talking about spy movies. That is correct, Dave, and this is a mini-series that is most definitely steeped in pure tradecraft and fairly historical as well. So let's talk about the company in this episode of Spies Like Us. Well, the story deals with a mole, and something interesting about the term the mole, it was uh, actually coined to the public by Jean Le Carré in 1974 uh, in his T.K. Taylor's Soldier Spy when they were kind of talking about Kim Philby. Now, we're not really sure if they weren't using the term in, I guess, the intelligence world, but uh, uh, this definitely was coined by Jean Le Carré to the public uh, after writing T.K. Taylor's Soldier Spy. So you're saying this is possibly anachronistic. We're going to talk about moles a lot in this miniseries. And it's, yeah. and it's possible that in 1955 that term possibly didn't exist. We're not sure. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of moles going on. There's moles for the moles in this story. This is definitely Cold War tradecraft. We're going into this. We're jumping in the deep end. Well, this is a 2007 miniseries. We mostly talk about movies uh, on this show, or at least that's the plan, but we do want to fit in some uh, some other media as well. Uh, this one's based on a best-selling novel by a guy named Robert Little. Littell? Not sure about the pronunciation of that. Uh, from 2002. And uh, we're only going to talk about the first episode of this one because we really found a lot to talk about in it. So this is kind of like semi-historical, where there's a bunch of real characters in it, but uh, the main characters are somewhat inspired by real people, but are mainly fudged fictional characters. Like, I think Alfred Molina was based on someone real. Yeah, he absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and but as far as I could tell, like only his name was changed, and I think we talk about that more later in the episode. But yeah, I think it's the central character that Chris O'Donnell plays that's an amalgam, 
uh, if I'm using that word and pronounce, yeah, I think I'm pronouncing that word correctly. I would call him an amalgam. Yeah, of of other of other people, and um, yeah, he's kind of like placed in this situation where like he uh, possibly could have been involved in all these events. It's basically like you're walking a fictional character through the events of a bunch of historical figures. Would you say that's right? Absolutely. Um, the company, the series overall, uh, covers CIA events uh, going from 1955 to 1991. Um, what do you, do you have a, a year that you think of as, as being officially the you know, uh, I, I don't want to say that, you know, I'm not trying to say that at the time people said like, okay, the Cold War is beginning now. But, uh, <laughs> but it... <laughs> well, I think a lot of people have argued that it's gone back farther than it's talked about. I mean, I, I believe Russia has been planting seeds for a very long time. And uh, prior to the establishment of the CIA, we didn't even have a, a, a long-running intelligence agency. We kind of were like very hands-off, like uh, gentlemen don't read the mail of other gentlemen type of situation. We would only have intelligence during wartime. But other countries did not feel the same way. And had I mean, in, in some ways, everywhere. I mean, in some ways, I mean, the roots of the Cold War clearly like uh, reach all the way into during the events of, of World War II, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, uh, I, I would probably, I mean, like, I've, I've heard people, like, I've read and seen, talk to people that they argued that it might have, like, started even before that. But, I mean, we were allied with the Russians, and so it would have been very easy for them to start, you know, I guess, building groundwork for a hefty, uh, I guess, operation of, of watching keeping tabs on the US. Which we know now in retrospect. Of course we didn't know that at, at, at least the public definitely didn't know it at the time. When do you think when do you think I don't know, we're um I don't know, we're not really of that generation, but when when do you think when do you think the Cold War started to like become a term in the public knowledge? I'm just asking you a question i know you're just only capable of probably taking a guess at but i'm curious what do you think oh i don't i don't i have no idea probably just before they took down the wall i don't know uh i don't know I, the public probably didn't know about all this stuff till about the 80s maybe but i, I feel mean, it's wrong I, I feel like i mean i feel like that's correct but then like in 1980 that's like you know, I'm born in 71, and 1980 is, like, I'm nine years old. That's when Reagan first makes his play for the presidency. That's when I first become anywhere near, like, politically aware, even, like, as a nine-year-old kid. Yeah, and uh, There are presidents, and they exist. You know? if, there were, if, there were, if there were people, public figures, talking about the Cold War before 1980, I don't know, but for sure... Reagan put that shit into stark relief. Like he he made no bones about the fact that we are involved in a conflict of epic good and evil versus Russia, blue versus red, 
Eagle yeah. or Spare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's what his entire presidency kind of hung on. That and like, like jump-starting inflation, I guess. <laughs> All right, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let's head to the briefing room, yeah? Let's do it. Voice pattern recognized. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. 1955 in Berlin is where we start the movie. And, um... There's a Russian defector or, or wannabe defector that, uh, as as part of arranging for you know getting him out of Berlin safely, uh, he promises to give Harvey Toridi, who's played by Alfred Molina, uh, some information about a Russian mole in MI6. Toridi's the guy that runs the operations in Berlin, uh, trying to watch what's going on over there. Um, He's kind of, I guess, the head handler of all the agents in Berlin. For what agency? For the CIA. Right. This movie's mostly about the CIA. We'll see a little bit of KGB and a little tiny bit of MI6 in it, but it's mostly a a CIA series. Um, Our main characters are all from the CIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Tariti, you know, he's obviously really interested in this information, uh, he communicates it to uh, HQ and prepares the extraction. And then we cut to Washington, where uh, another of our heavy hitter characters, uh, uh, Angleton, what's his, James Jesus Angleton? Yeah, James Jesus Angleton. He, right. He's actually, the character's actually based on a real person. Right. He started the, the counter, the, he was the head of the counterintelligence department of the CIA at the time. Right, so he's the right person that you would communicate this information to, right? Right, Tariti would, yes. Right. Um, um, but then Angleton, uh, pretty much in that same scene, he uh, alerts his best friend Philby uh, from MI6 uh, about... Also based on a real person, but yeah. Right, uh, That the, about the extraction and the operation. And... Um, we go back to Berlin, the extraction gets uh, busted up by the Berlin police and, and KGB, and Tariti's mad as hell about it. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much how this series starts, and, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I don't think it's really too difficult to figure out what happened here, right, Dave? No, definitely not. That mole happened to be Kim Philby. And We're- so Angleton, the head of intelligence, has been hanging out with this guy, and pretty much uh, tells the mole the information that they found a guy that has information on the mole, which uh, ends up... Pretty pretty much in the first, what, six, seven minutes of the movie? Ten minutes? Yeah. I keep calling it a movie, and I'm probably going to keep calling it a movie, even though it is uh, a miniseries. Miniseries, yeah. But, I mean, each episode of the miniseries is pretty much like a film length. It totally totally feels like a movie. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... um, that's the basics of what happened. I feel like the film maybe kind of knew. Well, I mean, maybe they were just trying to like get, you know, get through the story real quick. But I feel like they probably tried to like sneak that Philby leak in like really quick before we like were actually maybe as an audience leaning in and starting to pay attention. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Because that seems like the only way to pull it off. I, like, my nose started twitching when I saw it the first time, specifically when Keaton says, um, we're going to have, it's really important we keep this under wraps until, like, what, tomorrow night? Like, yeah. you, couldn't, you couldn't sit on this information for one fucking day? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But we think that this really happened. We know Angleton's a real character. Philby's a real character. Yeah, they're both real people. Uh, I don't know if the scene happened where, like, he just gives sense of information the day, the night before to Kim Philby. Yeah, but in the movie, do, that's what happened. Do we know if Angleton was the leak, though? Angleton was not the leak. Kim Philby was the, the leak. He Phil, Philby's the mole, but some... Angleton is leaking the information to Phil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is very well known. They were homies for like a while and would exchange information. So Kim Philby, uh, the real Kim Philby was an MI6 agent who is actually a double agent for the KGB who was hanging out with the head of uh, counterintelligence, the CIA, regularly sharing information. And so... When that like, new broke, it was a big deal. Yeah. Friends, friends for fifteen years. They they have yeah. dinner. They have dinner like every week together. Yeah. And uh, we covered that. Uh, okay, so Angleton and Philby definitely real characters. Tariti, interestingly, he's a uh, um, he's based on a real character. And by based on, it seems like it's really like just basically like renamed. Um, you know, it's it's not like like a loose interpretation of a character. It's literally like a a real guy whose name. Uh, let me grab it real quick. William King Harvey. Yeah. Was was the actual guy, and in this he's called Harvey Tariti. And again, that's Alfred Molina. And if you have those three characters in your mind, uh, Tariti, Angleton, Philby, you know everything you need to know about the main plot of the movie. The main plot of the movie is uh, Tariti is going to figure out how to. Uh, figure out who the MI6 mole is, and uh, Philby's going to run away. That's what's going to happen in the story, and we wanted to just lay that out for you because uh, the interesting part of discussion is like talking through like about like how it actually all plays out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it playing out is really what made uh, the the movie a great experience. Because yeah, like you said, that's pretty much what the story boils down to. There's a mole. They try and find them all, more gets away type of thing. But there's a ton of stuff that plays out getting from A to B. Right. And and a lot of it interconnects with this other subplot. But to keep things simple, we're going to talk through the main plot from beginning to end. Then we'll circle around, describe the subplot. And as we do that, we'll, we'll point out the, the ways that they connect up with each other. Sounds good. All right. At this point, Angleton uh, seems like he's um, not as convinced that there actually is a mole and uh, he kind of like puts it back on it makes it seem like it was uh you know a fuck up on Tariti's part which makes Tariti even matter and yeah. Tariti, Tariti sets out to try to like prove on this uh, little piece of evidence that he's got and and he's got just the just the information that there is a mole there was supposed to be more information coming there was going to be uh the defector was going to bring a tape recording of the the mole's last briefing 
And but since the extraction got messed up, that information never came through. So basically, at right. this point, we just have a we just have a hunch. Not not a hunch. We have a tip that there's a mole, and that's it. Yeah. And um, uh, so so the first step Tarita's got to do here is he's gonna um have to prove that a mole actually exists, and he's gonna do this through the use of something called a barium meal. So. The actual barium meal is uh, something that they give patients who are getting x-rays to show up uh, on the x-ray to show like their esophagus or their stomach or organs or whatever. Um, this, in this sense, in this movie, they're actually using it as kind of the idea of catching the the mole. So it's kind of like a play on words or kind of like a metaphor for the idea that they're going to feed some information on, you know, and send out a memo that is going to suss out a mole because they're going to um, limit where that information is released to and see how the mole reacts. And, and so that's mainly what they're talking about when they talk about a barium meal. It's, it's, it's specifically sending out information uh, to a specific source to kind of narrow down who the mole might be. Right. So, like, let's say I've got five people that uh, one of them could be the mole. If I give them all a piece of information that is – I give them each a different piece of information. Right. And it's got it's to be something that uh, they would act upon. Right. And right. They, exactly. the, other, the other key is that um, – they all need to think that they all got the same piece of information. Right. Because otherwise you would, you would know that you can't act on it because like, if I told you in confidence, just this one secret thing, uh, and then, you know, someone comes around telling me that they heard this one secret thing about me and you're the only person I ever told. Right. Well, then I know that you're the leak. Right. Exactly. But in this case, uh, we don't have a specific person in mind yet. Remember, Tariti just needs, right now, he just wants to confirm the fact there is a mole at MI6. So if we just right. give the information to MI6 and nobody and nobody else, and that information gets acted on, then all we'll know at that point is that someone at MI6 is a mole. Right. And, and that's exactly what he did. Tariti gives the information to a source he had in Lung, London, uh, that works for the MI6 to release this information out. Uh, and um, he only sent it through MI6 channels. So that way he could narrow down, yes, in fact, there is a mole at MI6. And this is our first uh, park bench scene. Yes, it is. In this movie, Tariti sits with uh, his, his English friend at a park bench, and they just seem to be having a casual conversation. And I just love it. It's a super cute trope of spy movies. Yes, it is. All and it's not it's not going to be the first, the last park bench scene that we see in this movie. No, we I, definitely have many park bench scenes. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and the other piece of information we get here um, in this scene is uh, when, when, he, when he brings up the possibility of there being a mole at MI6, uh, his English friend does say, well, there was a rumor years back of, uh, of a mole in MI6 named Parsival, codenamed Parsival, um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's just an, like an old rumor, old, old, old rumor. Nobody really pays attention to it anymore. And I think he said that they had, 
that that rumor had been uh, like uh, eliminated that like uh, they weren't able to find the mole and that they think it was just a rumor and it was all made up. Um, and, and as far as I could tell, I immediately did. I googled Parseval. I couldn't find that uh, in any like information about this story. So I'm not sure that the the real life MI6 mole's code name was Parseval. No, I don't think so either. Okay. The information that uh, is published in the memo to MI6 is specifically that Tariti knows that there's a mole and that he knows the mole's identity, which, of course, is not true. However, <laughs> he's certain that if this information reaches the mole, the mole will definitely try to wipe Tariti out or capture or kill him uh, so that uh, before he can get that information out. And uh, that is indeed what happens. So talk to me. Talk to me about uh, how the how the KGB did this. Well, basically, um, what they were trying to do was smoke out Harvey to get him out in public because they wanted to basically kill him to protect the mole. I want to kill Tariti. Why don't I just go kill him? They probably didn't know where he was. Of course they don't. He's a he's a CIA secret agent. So yeah. what do you do? So what do you do? Uh, yeah. So they called him and said, "Hi, uh, there's a person that has some interesting information. I think we presume that it's a list of names that are possible moles or double agents. And and the the what what they're thinking is they're offering him some real information that he can't ignore." And so he's going to come out and then they're going to shoot him or dispose of him, however they do that. Um, so that's why he would go out. And he goes to a church where uh, he meets a lady who shows him something on a piece of paper, says, are you interested in this? He says, yes, I'm very interested. She says, $25,000. He says, fuck yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> then, on his way out, uh, he gets ambushed. The 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 some KGB or I don't know. They could be hired thugs. We don't. It's not established here. But some guys jump out of the alley and start shooting at him. He's prepared though. Uh, he had his protege in the car with a Tommy gun, and he had uh, a couple of his agents that were actually inside the church, uh, posing. It looked like as as clergy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they they come out of the back door. They shoot those guys. The cops show up immediately, which, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, we're immediately saying like, okay, that sounds fishy. Yeah. Uh, you know, Harvey's protege does say like, hey, how did they show up so fast? Yeah. Harvey, Harvey says, light them up. And, uh, and uh, uh, protege does. They just shoot the cops. Um, because yeah, Harvey was under no illusions that that was going to be. Uh, part of the trap, which is pretty cool. And our Berlin station crew gets out of there. So now Tariti is certain that uh, the defector's information was correct. There is a mole at MI6, so uh, he's going to narrow it down with a further barium meal. We meet up again with his uh, friend in London. They're at the same park. Unfortunately, they decide not to sit at a bench. This is a kind of a missed opportunity. Um, <laughs> but... But there's still benches in the scene. 
And who knows, maybe there's some other spy stuff going on in the background that we don't know about by other people sitting at park benches. I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> now, at this, so at this point now, uh, so obviously like uh, our London guy, now he's also convinced that Chiriti is uh, correct about his suspicions, right? Yeah, this pretty this first Barry Emile has confirmed it because his his friend at the MI six, which we're not really sure what his name was, but what uh, was it didn't believe it, and he he was actually kind of uh, uh, you know a little funny where he was just complaining about look, I got two more years of retirement. But after this first Barry Emile, he's convinced that there is in fact a mole at MI six, and so now the meeting about possibly having uh, some more information, which I think. The, is, this is when the friend tells him that uh, Philby is a possible suspect, right? That is correct. Yeah. Why don't you lay that out for us real quick? Yeah, so basically, he, uh, you know, in our first meeting at the park bench, he was saying, you know, there was a rumor of a mole at some point. He kind of, he, it seemed like he kind of brought it up just in more of a way of saying, you know, there's always rumors. Right. Know? Right. He was just kind of like, yeah, these things come up all the time, you know, whatever. Now that he's actually convinced that there is one, he starts, I get, we, we presume he starts looking into people and starts bringing up Philby as a possible suspect. Who Philby was stationed in South America at some point years before. And, well, first, he was married to a communist woman and has done a lot to hide the fact that this ever happened. Interesting. Very interesting. And when he was stationed in South America, he checked out every communist book in the MI6 library that was available to him. This could possibly be your suspect. And and so he kind of helps out Tariti here by giving him someone to look at. Right. right. So the second barium meal is going to be um, uh, more targeted. Right. And actually, I think that at the end of the day, well, so the idea is now we're going to give some information just to Philby. But Philby's going to think that everyone got it. So here it's not clear what the mechanism of delivery is because he says he's got a memo that he wants his English friend to publish. Yeah, so memo, yeah. A memo goes to everyone, but I guess the idea would be English guy would give his secretary, because uh, at this point, you know, we don't have email or anything. Um, yeah. And I think uh, copies of memos were probably all typed out. Like every copy was typed out by hand. Yeah. Back in that day, you would have secretaries just typing all day. Right. I mean, I think they did have some like special paper so you could, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but some special paper that you could like type one and get like three copies of it because it would like go through or something like that. Yeah, like carbon, carbon fiber paper or whatever. I remember that. I remember that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we still had we still had it around for certain applications. When yeah. I was a kid. Um, the other thing, the other thing to mention though that doesn't quite make sense here, but I guess it's just done for the movie's expediency, is that Harvey shows up all, with the memo that he wants published already prepared, even though it's in this scene that his English friend tells him about Philby. Right. Yeah. It's a tad it's a tad bit clumsy if you if you look too closely at it. And this is not the only thing that I think kind of falls apart under really close scrutiny of this of this plot. Yeah, definitely not the only thing that we've we're we're gonna get into, but um 
you know, it is kind of rushed by and it's a little shaky. Uh, we think it could have been done a little bit tighter, but the idea is that he's going to set out more information and be able to narrow down who the mole is. Right. And since they never tell us what the contents of this memo is, do you have any speculation, just any ideas of, of what it could be? Uh, I actually think that he threw his whole operation under the bus, but I don't want to get into too much of that because we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Oh, that's right. We are going to talk about that later. Good call. Good yeah. call. Yeah, but uh, I, I believe that this last barium meal is throwing his entire operation under the bus, um, which is very interesting later when we talk yeah. about Yeah. So in, in in just right in just a minute we'll start in on that subplot. We'll we'll go back to the beginning of the movie, lay out the subplot and how it connects in with here. But just to finish up how the main plot ends, this barium meal contents unknown. Uh, it pays off. Philby is definitely the mole. Tariti thinks he makes his case against Philby in Washington, and uh, Philby flees. The day uh, that um, Angleton was alerted about the extraction at the beginning, communications to Moscow went crazy through the roof. Um, between, so the, between the Russian embassy and Moscow. Because during the time that this extraction was supposed to happen, Angleton is hanging out with Philby, telling him, you know, exchanging information and talking to each other like the good buddies they are. The day or... I think it's the day that I guess Angleton would have brought that information up. Communications to Moscow uh, were going up uh, to a noticeable amount, uh, a, a very noticeable difference in uh, communications had changed uh, within that window. So the that is one piece of hard evidence that um, somebody got that information to the Russian embassy and uh, they, they're they saying that it's probably Philby because Philby would have been the only other person that got that information. Uh, I think Angleton was still, like, pissing on the idea that there was a mole, and it's the radio transmission thing that makes it seem that seem very certain. And then, of course, Philby, like, not reporting to work and nowhere to be found is pretty much damning evidence against him. And we just in case there was any doubt, we as the audience see him fleeing... Right? Yeah, or we yeah. see him meeting with another uh, undercover Russian agent who's who's prepared his extraction, which he's successful uh, in in escaping uh, from the wrath of the CIA. This in real life was actually a big deal when when Kim Philby was found out. Um, it, it it sent James Angleton on a witch hunt, and uh, he pretty much was like. You know, everyone's a Russian mole until I prove otherwise, you know, type of thing. And he actually sussed out a lot of other, the real James Angleton sussed out a lot of other moles that were working. Yeah. But he went on this crazy witch hunt. Yeah. So the the moment that Angleton in the movie realizes that all this happened under his nose, you know, it's, it's, it it like messes with his head, you know, cause he, you know, at this point he's the head of counterintelligence and he's the leak, you know? So, so this, this, this ends up setting us up for the next two episodes of this mini series where Angleton has come to realize that, you know, Russia's putting moles all over the place, you know? (laughs) 
they do seem they do seem to be awfully awfully good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dialing it back, we're going to be discussing the subplot of uh, the movie that also intertwines with our main plot involving the mole. Um, we're going to call it Operation Rainbow. Um, our main character, Jack, who's played by Chris O'Donnell, pretty much the protege of Tariti, uh, is hand, is sent to go meet this uh, lady who's also a dancer. Where's this dance place? This is in Berlin. Okay. Yeah, and um, and this is this is still there's the east and west. You know, German. The wall is up at this point, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the, there's that whole issue. Well, actually, actually, wait. I'm not 100% sure the wall is up, but there's definitely an East and West Berlin, and you're definitely, like, not supposed to be crossing back and forth willy-nilly. Mora, can you check us on that real quick? Note, construction of the Berlin Wall commenced on August 13th of 1961. Yeah, like, like without any, you know. Uh, so, um, but, uh, you know, our main character, Jack, is, is set to meet... He's basically going to be handling this, uh, I guess, asset, we'll call her. Um, she uh, has a acquaintance or friend, uh, we'll call it for now, whose code name is Sniper. Her code name is Rainbow. And Sniper is supposed to be some type of scientist or doctor or professor of some sort that has lots of really good information really really good information that he is going to give to rainbow and she is going to pass that information on to jack and so every week jack is going to meet with this uh young woman uh who i guess does ballet on the side of passing information off to spies um uh and every week he's going to show up to this dance studio that she practices at and she will hand him a note that has some handwriting on it that contains information um, that's pretty much the gist of this, uh, I guess, operation is, um, I, you know, we, we're never really told what the information is, but being, uh, uh, sniper being a professor or a doctor, we presume it's like scientific information of some sort, uh, or actually, actually Dave, the first piece of information is, uh, some kind of, um, Oh, it's a code. Wait, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's a way. It's a code that helps them decrypt some transmissions that they've that the CIA station has been intercepting, but not able to to decode. Right. So, so the first inf- piece of information is like uh, totally legit, and Harvey's really excited about it. Yeah, super excited because all this information just. That's right. That code helped them uh, basically open the door for them to get tons and tons of intel. Just because they're able to decrypt um, the 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 communications that are coming out, everything's going fine and dandy. Except at one point, they find out that she's been feeding them misinformation. Uh, after Jack confronts her, it turns out that she had been compromised, and he's going to try and bring her out of Germany to save her life. But she refuses to leave without Sniper, who apparently she owes her life to, which is the professor that she's been getting this information from. Well, before they can get them out, uh, the KGB get to Sniper and uh, uh, 
like hang him and so they um he looks like a suicide and she ends up shooting herself um so that's pretty much the overall story of of the the rainbow plot right real quick i was never quite clear i know that in the wiki it says they killed him and you say they killed him and made it look like he suicided but to me it actually makes more sense that he committed suicide because if they want to kill him and then kill her why leave the apartment why don't they just stick around in the apartment and whack her when she comes in well you know she ends up shooting herself so maybe they don't want to kill her maybe they want to use her for something later now when she comes home and finds she finds a, a note that he left apparently which i guess if you follow the the murder hypothesis then it's a forged note but she reads a note which makes her seem like totally horrified and then she looks up and she sees that the professor has apparently hung himself and then at that point the KGB move in on the apartment in force with like a bunch of guys and a bunch of uh, East Berlin police. Um, mostly like these operations. Same thing with the, the defection. It's the East German police that come in. But since in both cases they have KGB agents like with them, um, you know, it just seems like kind of a like a little bit of a masquerade. It's a KGB operation disguised as a police operation. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, um, that's interesting. That maybe he really did kill himself, but then why would they be? That is interesting. Yeah, why wouldn't they just have gotten her after they killed her? That's really, right. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. Okay, but anyways, like like I said, the wiki says they killed him. Um, I don't know. Um, so here's here's how it all went down, though, right? Um, after that first juicy piece of information which was confirmed good because that's not something you can fake right like no uh it's if it's a code that is actually uh you know the the cia station can validate it in that it actually does work and it does unencrypt the transmissions unless the transmissions themselves were faked but i don't think that's what's going on because i think at this first part uh of the movie when she feeds the first piece of information, she has not yet been compromised. Right. Um, but at some point, they do. They get her. And, uh, and if, when they... if, if you're paying really close to the uh, attention to the events of the movie, when's, when's our first clue that she's been compromised? Uh, well, I mean, if you want to go with when she decides to go on the date with Jack... Um, the whole time that they had been meeting, she's constantly telling, don't try to get close to me or learn who the professor is or all of our you know, meetings will cease. You'll never get information from me. Well, he asks her out on a date and she's like, ah, I'll never go. Uh, but she ends up going. So, which we thought was weird because she was super adamant about being careful and not getting close to anybody. In fact, he tried to kind of woo her uh, earlier and she kind of like, you know, kind of pushed him aside and said, don't get close to me or whatever. But now all of a sudden she's like going full, full blast in on, on uh, hanging out with Jack. So I think that's our first clue that she, uh, some, some difference going on to something weird going on. She does when, when they do, when she does like drop her barrier and, and, and let him in, she does seem very upset about it, but not uh, upset enough to like not go to bed with him. Which yeah. they, they immediately do. 
Right. And uh, we also had we also <laughs> we also at the uh, time of their first kiss, we as the audience are treated to an exterior shot looking in through a window at them, which cinematically is supposed to convey the idea. Uh, whether or not it's literal or uh, metaphorical that they're being watched. But it's if you're taking every little bit as actually meaning something, uh, at this point, yeah, we, we're pretty sure that she's compromised at this point. And then the other part is of it that connects is that um, she disappeared for a while. Yeah, that's right. She, and she and uh, Jack was panicked. She was gone for like two weeks or something. Right. She stopped making contact. He had no idea what had happened to her. He was worried that they had caught her and, and uh, uh, you know, killed her or maybe possibly or whatever. Um, But, uh, and uh, that actually, and that happened in interestingly or not, I'm not sure, but that did happen right after the delivery of the first barium meal, because it's while Chiriti is waiting for that phone call that leads us to the church ambush, that that is when Jack is uh, telling, telling Chiriti, his, his mentor and boss, um, about his concerns about Rainbow. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, quick thing about Jack before I forget. Jack, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned, but Jack is played by Chris O'Donnell. And remember, at the beginning of the episode, I was talking about uh, Gore Vidal's creation and that one character that uh, was fictionally manufactured by the author to have plausibly been able to have participated in a and met a bunch of people uh, that. You know, no no actual person did follow this course in history, but it was a way of showing how a person could have lived through certain events in history. Right. And Jack is that character, and that and the reason I brought it up later in the series, he's I I know he's involved in the Bay of Pigs incident. Oh, in the whole series, he's involved in every major CIA operation that's ever happened during the cold war it's like ridiculous like there's no like even though it's it's possible to have happened there's no way somebody went and lived through and survived and like participated in all of those events like the way he did you know like he was solely responsible for training the entire south america the cuban army to go fight at the bay of pigs you know by himself you know like it is pretty funny, but it's it's interesting because we get to see the course of the Cold War through the eyes of this one character, right? Which is mainly like the premise of of the miniseries as as a whole. Um, so yeah, fictional character Jack. Uh, I don't think we have any reason to think that uh, Rainbow and the Professor are actual characters from history, or that this sure op- or that this- somebody like them, you know. But- Oh, yeah, obviously, there are operations going on. But I think this particular, this whole Operation Rainbow thing is like, uh, A, it's an example of an operation that could have been, uh, information about this operation could have been used in figuring out how to suss out the MI6 mole. Right. So, again, it's like a, a fictional, probably a fictional operation that dovetails in with an actual operation, just like... Jack is a fictional character that intersects with a whole bunch of historical figures. Right. Um, yeah, one last thing, um, just before we forget, they did, uh, right after they started Operation Rainbow, 
And uh, let's see, they they bugged. They did follow her, even though they said not. She said not to. They did follow her, and they did bug her apartment, and that's going to become important later. Sometime after Rainbow's compromised and starts doing the kissy kissy pee with Jack, uh, he's <laughs> he's approached by a, a. Well, at first he doesn't seem creepy, but this guy in a nightclub. Um, it's a guy that, uh, uh, now, by the way, Jack, uh, uh gra- or graduated from Yale and he was a, a rower as you do, if you're uh, going to be in the CIA in 1955, it's almost essential that, uh, that's your, that's your in crew and, and, uh, uh, went to Yale. <laughs> right. And this guy, this guy didn't go to Yale, but he was also a rower for some other school. And he like, like they, they, they were kind of acquaintances. He said like we rode against each other once and he, he kind of uh, chats Jack up and, and seems really friendly and is talking about the United States and what's it like. And I'm thinking about maybe moving to Colorado. And, but then he, it slowly unveils that uh, Borisov, which is the guy's name, he's not a super important character. I don't think he doesn't show up more later in the series, does he? I don't think so. He's no, going really. to have another couple scenes in this movie, though. So I do want to mention his name. That's Borisov. And he offers Jack $150,000 for, I think, yeah, he's, he knows about the girl. Does he mention the girl? I'm not sure. But he's just basically $150,000 for information. Right. Which Jack does not, yeah, Jack tells him to go fuck himself, basically. Yeah, and he's really, really, really upset about it, too. Like, what? he's insulted that he would even be offered such a deal. Right. Now, in case, it, it's not explicitly clear in the nightclub scene, but Borisov is KGB. We'll, we'll definitely establish that in, in his next couple of scenes. So here's my question to you, Dave. Uh-huh. If, all right, I'm the KGB, and I have compromised Rainbow. I have talked her into uh, giving the Americans bad information. And they're buying. They're buying. Right. What is the purpose of me going to Jack and offering him $150,000 if for him to presumably tell me uh, who he's getting his information from. I already know that. Well, it's a way to double down on her to make her look more reliable. That they have no idea this operation's going on and uh, the information getting is completely reliable and accurate. And, and they're pretty much putting up this, I, I guess, idea to corner him. But let's say he does take the $150,000. They've now gotten a really, really good turnout. You know what I mean? They've gotten, I'm sorry, you faded out just a little bit. You got what? They, they have a very, very solid uh, turncoat at that point if Jack does decide to take the money. So they're kind of playing it out. Like, one, they're putting on this kind of show to try and make Rainbow's info more... I guess believable, but um, if he does end up taking the money, uh, they, they would have a very, very, very solid uh, asset. Very, very smart. So either way, like it's a hedging your bets thing, either way they win. Um, they either are doubling down on what they have, which is Rainbow, or they're yeah. trading up to get an even more valuable person that's turned. Because we know the way this works is like once you... Uh, do one thing for the enemy. Uh-huh. 
you're stuck. You can't get out. Your turn, because then they always have that to use against you, and then they get even more stuff out of you. Right, exactly. So it's it it's it's just never. We saw that like over and over and over in the Americans. Oh, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole that was the whole point of that show was like demonstrating how just the tiniest little baby first step, you know, just the chink in the armor is all they need. That was also I don't know. Did you watch The Sopranos? Uh, no, it came out like a while ago. I don't think I had HBO at that time. There's this really, really super sad subplot where uh, a girlfriend of, of one of Tony's crew gets turned by the FBI. Well, and it's, and it's so sad because like, I forget how they first got her, but, um, it totally wasn't her fault. And it's a really sympathetic, sympathetic character that you care deeply about. And, you just feel so bad for her, like, because once once they get the first thing on her, then they just turn on the screws. They're like, well, you know, like at this point, all we have to do is like drop a dime on you, and you are fucking dead. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what eventually happens, of course, after they bleed her dry. Yeah. That's um. Sweet. Right, right, right. So yeah, so that was the nightclub. Um. Back in London, in the main plot, this is uh, this is around the time in the movie where we see the second barium meal get delivered. Yeah. Um, then and, we, yeah. Go ahead. Suspicion is alright. Uh, this one is friend in London kind of lets him know, hey, there's this guy Philby that is questionable. Right. Um, right. I look into, yeah. Right, which we talked about. Um, and then uh, Jack is is. Listening to the the wiretap of the um, of Sniper's apartment or her apartment, their shared apartment. They live together, right? Yeah, they live together. Okay, and um, saved her life at some point, or like got her out or whatever. So yeah, yeah, she's very so, devoted to him. And then yeah. uh, during the scene, uh, Jack gets ambushed by the KGB, uh, and Borisov is there, and uh, Borisov seems really keen on using this as as a like as a moment to find out where the ballerina is where she lives right it seems like they try to kill jack but he manages to get away but later we're going to find out that this was another charade this is another example of borisov being super sneaky like he was in the nightclub they right. actually they actually jack doesn't know this now we as the audience don't know this now but he will later figure out that even this ambush was just a way they never man they never planned on killing him. They never planned on killing him. They never planned on uh, really getting anything out of him. The whole point was just to double down on Rainbow so that he would trust her as a source. Right. It's even even more of that. But it also has that same. It occurs to me now that same uh, double. Uh, purpose thing because again like what if Jack is so afraid for his life that he gives up Rainbow right now well I guess actually that doesn't work so I guess they're trusting that he's going to be a tough cookie yeah <laughs> we just want to talk because the last thing you would want to do right now is have Jack tell you that who Rainbow is because then your whole uh pipeline that you have of feeding bad information to the CIA is cut off. Right. So I'm presuming they definitely, they're definitely counting on Jack to not fold and to think that he's uh, just escaping 
by the the skin of his teeth and saving, uh, you know, protecting his lady love. Yeah. Which, by the way, I think I mentioned before the whole Operation Rainbow thing. As the the operation here has two purposes, I think I only mentioned one. The second one was really just to introduce a love interest and a romantic story into this whole plot, oh, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Right. This is just to give us some saucy romance. And, uh, you know, it's fine. It's it's a movie. We got to have it, right? Yep, yep, yep. That's how you sell the movie. You know? Then, after the fight... Perfect. Jack finds out that... Uh, well, he's pretty... One of the guys in the operation shows up and tells him that there's some discrepancies in what Rainbow is giving him and what... Uh, the that sniper has been finding out on the phone as we find out that they've bugged their apartment. So what's going on is Rainbow's giving them different information than the professor is getting on the phone. And this creates a problem. So this now tells Jack that there's probably something fishy going on with the professor is what they assume at that point. I am a little I'm a little confused here. I, I get that there's a bug in the apartment. Yeah. And and what's 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 going on? What's the discrepancy? So, as you know, as we discussed, Rainbow's handing information out to Jack. Well, what she's doing is handing him a cloth or a paper with handwriting on it. When they went and bugged her apartment, they're able to listen to Sniper, who's the professor, talk on the phone and have conversations with other people. So they're actually hearing him get the information. And what's happening is the information he's getting has not been written on those notes. In fact, there's been different information written on their notes. So this leads them to believe that Sniper is actually the one that's dealing out the information. But we discover quickly when Jack confronts her because right now he's 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 going to her to say you're in trouble. The professor has betrayed you. Yeah, you're being betrayed by your professor, this guy that you love so much and care deeply for. Because there's different information that he's uh, giving to certain people that's not showing up in your notes. Right, or that he's getting, and it's not showing up on the notes. Well, this is when she tells Jack no. I am the one that's betrayed you and the professor. And we find out that Rainbow was the one that was compromised. So at some point, uh, the KGB figured out that this exchange was going on. They found her and threatened her. And what she's been doing is bringing the notes to them. And they edit the information. And she brings the new edited note to Jack. Okay, okay. What do we think? Uh, we, we don't know what the KGB has on her, do we? No, other than they could probably threaten her life. We don't know what the leverage they used was, but, you know, it, it, they, they probably could have threatened to kill her. They could have threatened to deport her, you know, or send her back or whatever, or hurt the professor or whatever. But at this point, uh, we find out that what they did is at some point, uh, during the rainbow operation, they found out and then approached her and flipped her, and basically were using her to spread misinformation to the CIA. Okay, cool. So we're caught up on that now. Which 
is I don't know if we brought up uh, earlier um, why we think that she was flipped at, at the point when she goes to the opera because she was so adamant about not wanting to get closer to Jack. Then all of a sudden is going like, like head first into like this like huge romance with Jack. Well, and, and that's why we believe that might have been the time because she came on the date after she was missing for two weeks. Actually, no, I just, and I'm checking it right now. No, it's before she was missing. So that part was, I, we, I mean, that seemed good. And, but maybe that was part of this. Uh, we're going to talk about this more at the end, but let's mention it right now. I think this might be one of those cases where the movie might have been choppily edited because it does really feel right. Well, actually, maybe maybe not, because he says he says he's inviting her to the ballet. She says no, but then it's only a couple days later that she says yes, and she was missing for like several weeks. So that doesn't jive. That part doesn't jive. I don't think it that... was like two weeks. Yeah, was... yeah. I, I don't. I don't think there was that big of a difference between, you know, uh, you know, he doesn't show up at the ballet. And say, where were you? I was so worried about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, let's see. What else? What else do we have? Oh, let's go right into the finale. We're we're right there, the finale for Operation Rainbow. Um, back in Washington, in the main plot, this is the point where Tariti lays out his case versus Philby, and Philby flees. And then the doctor. Uh, either suicides or is murdered. Right. And she commits suicide before the KGB can get to her and before Jack can get her safely out of Berlin. Right, which is what he wanted to do, but now that she's... Yeah, they they got there, like, right at the... Wait, a little little too late to, to have the heroic uh, saving scene, so it ends in a sad scene. It's a very... It's a... It's a you know, it's a very classically tragic scene. I mean, it's kind of well done, but, you know, just from a story point of view, like, we've seen this a million times. Right, exactly. It's kind of just by the numbers. Yeah. (laughs) And so here, now that we're, like, at the end of the movie, um, Jack asks his boss, Tariti, so again, like, uh, uh, you know, the main plot has been collapsed and and finished. Uh, Philby's been fingered, Philby has fled. Jack and Trudy are having a talk in their office. And Jack asks his boss very pointedly. Yeah, you know, did, did he you? He says, like, yeah. don't, lie, don't lie to me. Yeah. Yeah, did, did you, like, he basically accused him of throwing Rainbow under the bus, that that was part of the barium meal. To which Tariti then uh, says, on my mother's grave, and pours out two shots for each of them to drink to together. But uh, we were talking earlier about this, and we think... He denies it. He denies it. He denies it. Completely denies it. And gives one of those, I'd never would do that. That was my crown jewel. And on my mother's grave, I would never have done that. Says, I would have given up a lot, a right. lot, to get this mole in MI6. But this operation, this rainbow operation, this was my, like you said, crown jewel. Yeah. I was super proud of this operation. I never would have given up the professor. Right, exactly. I don't but, believe him. But... Uh, I don't believe him. Yeah, I don't believe him either. I don't I, believe him at all. I think he did throw her under the bus, and now uh, 
we're, we're having Jack learn the reality of the spy world. Because <laughs> in that shot where they're drinking together, I think Jack kind of stares off, and I think he's contemplating whether or not he should believe Tariti. And so I think Jack might have figured out that he that that's that's what happened, or he's still I, questioning it. I think it's really clear from that scene that that we're meant to think that. Now, but let's take it from the top chain of events. Uh, suspicion there's a mole in MI6. Mm-hmm. Um, Operation Rainbow begins. We get legit information. Trying to suss out whether or not there really is an MI6 mole, we have our first barium meal. That leads to the church ambush, confirming there's a mole at MI6. It is at this point that she disappears. It kind of seems it suggested that uh, possibly she was compromised by Tariti in the first barium meal, and that's why she disappears for a while. But it also, I don't know if, I don't know if that exactly holds water. Maybe it does. Maybe it well, does. So Tariti might have put more information in the barium meal than he let Jack know about. All he tells Jack is that I told them that I know who the mole is and they're going to try to kill me. If they, if if someone tries to kill me in the next 24 hours, yeah. there's a mole at MI6. Yeah. And, and that's exactly <laughs> what happens. Possibly, he also put the information in there about Rainbow. But why would you? Because just the thing of him, them trying to kill him, should be enough? That should be enough, because he already released the information. That's why, you know, this goes back to your point about cutting the movie. You know, I, th- I think you do have a good point about how it was cut, because there's, there's moments like this throughout this whole story, where it's like, well, wait a minute, if this is the case, then this is what should have happened. But it ends up not going out in that order. So... We're not sure exactly what was on that information, and it she, could have been. She, she might have been mentioned in the first barium meal. Some parts of the movie seem to suggest that she was, but it doesn't seem to make sense to us unless, unless Tariti somehow thought that he needed to put two juicy pieces of information in there. Maybe the mole wouldn't try to get him killed, but if Rainbow disappeared, then that would also confirm his suspicion. So if he put both pieces of information and both things happened, then he's like even extra sure. Well, here's the deal. Maybe she was compromised because they were watching Jack or something. Uh, And uh, they were following him and seeing their meetings at this ballet thing, which uh, at that point, that's how she could have been compromised. And they didn't have Sniper. They only had her. Or... um, uh, well, you know, that's why I don't think he did put anything about Rainbow in the first Barry Meal because when he's talking to his British friend releasing the same Barry Meal, he's like, this one's really juicy. You know, he, he has to give out real information. It's really important that he does that. And so I, I think him putting himself out there in the first Barry Meal was enough to confirm there was a mole, but now he's going to sell out the Rainbow operation. And if anything happens, he knows that he... Uh, has got the mole by the balls, so to speak. There's a good possibility. Now, remember, this uh, miniseries is based on a novel, and a chain of events in the novel might have been laid out a little more uh, thickly. And 
even though, like, in this miniseries, it just revolves around two barium meals. One to establish definitely there's a mole at MI6. A second one to establish that it's Philby. Now, that is, seems awfully abbreviated to me. I mean, that is just basically two steps. Like, yeah. that's two moves in a chess game. That's not really complicated shit. No. In, in more likelihood, there's probably a, a much longer series of barium meals, right? Yeah, absolutely. To slowly narrow it down and, and, and uh, consistently... Well, that's the funny thing, too. I, I think Angleton, when he's talking to Tariti in his garden, he's talking about gardening is a lot like counterintelligence. It's, you have to, it takes a lot of patience. He's like growing orchids, you know, even if, it, if there is a bloom, it takes a, a 12 months for it to, like, come out of the ground and then, like, five years for them to bloom. So he makes this whole speech about how much patience and intricate and, like, you know, long-term counterintelligence is. And then these barium meals are, like, within, like, a month, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, we don't really know the timeline. But, but yeah, so here's my theory. Here's my theory is that uh, in the novel there were more barium meals than just a one-two. And yeah. in the novel, a further, one of the intermediary barium meals was uh, tipping the KGB off to Rainbow. When yeah. they condensed it into the single episode of this series, they clumsily tried to, like, kind of fit both into one barium meal. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. yeah that, that scans for me. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, well, I mean, I, I, I just go back to your point that there's probably some bad cuts that they just kind of had to throw things together and post. Well, I'm gonna throw the big, I'm gonna throw the big one out right now. Yeah. Like, here's the really big one to me. We talked earlier about the fact that we don't know, and we're never told, or even hinted, what the contents of the second barium meal is. Notice they never talk about it, even in the Washington yeah. briefing. He just says it's really juicy. He says it's really juicy. Um, and it's right after he lays out his case in Washington. So presumably the second barium meal has paid off. Whoever, uh, that Philby, having been given the information, has acted on it, and that only Philby had that information, and so now, now is when Tariti absolutely knows that it's Philby, and it's after this, in the movie, pretty much right after this, that the KGB make their move on the Professor and Rainbow. Right. Doesn't it seem like this movie would make so much more sense if that scene had happened right before... Right, because then he came, he would the, come in, yeah. And that that was his confirmation. That it was Philby. Right. Yeah, but... Um, Which, by the see way... He's, in, he's actually not sure of himself. He's just like, he doesn't have any damning evidence, he just has evidence that makes Philby look really bad, and that's why Angleton refuses to accept the fact that it's Philby. And he says to him, the, 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 the big... Smoking gun, according to Tariti, is the extraction. No one else. He, he Tariti says from that he's specifically from the beginning from the extraction from the very beginning of the movie. From the very beginning of the movie, because he said 
He says, I specifically did not let MI6 know about this. And the only person who could have gotten it that would it would have been from Philby because you gave it to him. Because no one else would have known this information. And that's the only way. So that's like where his argument kind of hinges. And and he's his all these burial meals, even though they've paid off and proven there is a mole, you know, Angleton's still not, not convinced. And and so I think I think the that might be a why they've they've cut it that way because the second variant meal doesn't really narrow anybody down. It well, it narrows down. It narrows down, and I think it does narrow down to Philby. But Angleton is still at that. It narrows it down to Philby, but Angleton is still saying like, well, there's other places the leak could have come from along the chain. He's like, there's secretaries, there's yeah. couriers, there's yeah. all sorts of people, and. But then you're right. Then that's when they ask Angleton point blank, though, and it's not Tariti that levels this. I think it's uh, Dulles or or whatever. It's it's the head guy at the meeting, right? Anyways, the head well, guy at the meeting that 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 asks Angleton. Okay, so did you tell Philby about the? Extraction? Oh, I think that was Dulles. That was Dulles. Right, and Angleton is like, well, yeah, I did, but. You know, I've known the guy for 15 years, blah, blah, blah. And that's when they bring up the fact that, like, right after that is when the radio transmissions went nuts between yeah, the yeah. embassy and Moscow. Right, exactly. So I think, uh, you know, I think that if we were to go to the novel, and it's weird, like, you know, the wiki on the miniseries is, like, is like very rich, and there, you can get a lot of information, people talking about the miniseries. I couldn't find people, like, discussing the plot of the book. But I suspect that in the book, it's Chiriti sold out Rainbow, like, completely. Sold out Rainbow and Sniper. Oh, and by the way, I think he knew. I think he was... Uh, this is also important. I think that he was willing also to sell her out, even though it's super cold-hearted. It's... I mean, let's let's put a point in this. If true... Tariti's a cold-hearted motherfucker, right? Yeah. And a good liar. And a good liar. Um, but also, he would have been willing to... More willing to sell Rainbow out if he already knew that she had been turned. And follow me through on this logic. They tapped the apartment right at the beginning of Operation Rainbow. Yeah, it was right at the beginning. After the first meeting, they sent guys to follow her. Jack does not immediately notice. I mean, this is presumably happens over months. Jack does not immediately notice that there's discrepancies after she disappears and reappears. The discrepancies begin appearing in her uh, deliveries of information, right? Yeah, and that's why... Oh, and Tariti, when when Jack is upset that she's missing, he kind of is nonchalant about it. Hey, whatever, she'll be back. You know, my, my, your, your agent goes missing and you don't care? You know, he's got to know something. Right. So my, my point is somebody's listening to the transmissions. Somebody is running this operation one step above Jack, and that is Tariti. So probably Tariti has the... Um, he is seeing the discrepancies like much earlier in the story. Right. And maybe again, that would tie into my theory that a, an intermediary barium meal was to tip off the KGB or tip off 
somebody in the MI6 probably, again, as this kind of like funneling operation of like narrowing it down, narrowing it down right. of who it could be, that one part of it is to let them know about Rainbow. And then Tariti will be able to see because all the inf – he's probably got one agent. He's got Jack who's giving him the information of what she's giving on the silk. He's got another agent who's probably in charge of listening to the, the wiretap, and that's Radio Guy. We didn't mention there's, there's a few other characters that are uh, at Berlin Station. Uh, they're just mostly, not established. Yeah, they're just mostly they don't get named. But there's one guy that always seems to be in charge of all the radio stuff. Yeah, right. We we keep calling him Radio Guy when we're talking about this movie. Yeah. He's <laughs> the guy that he's the guy that put in the bug. He's the guy that's always like monitoring transmissions and stuff. So Tarita's probably getting the one information from Jack of what she's putting, what she's delivering. He's getting the other information from Radio Operator. And so Tariti can put the pieces together and tell that she's been compromised. But he doesn't let anybody know. Like, Jack and the radio operator aren't talking to each other. Yeah. So, again, this is also why he would uh, be willing. So he And what does he do? He doesn't act on that immediately. First of all, he just says, aha, this is confirmation that one of my barium mills has succeeded. Right, right, right. Because right, right. after I you know, did this one which, you know, like we said, it's probably an intermediary one that isn't explicitly shown in the movie. But he doesn't act on it immediately, because why would you? Now you have some other information. Now you know something that the enemy doesn't know that you don't know that they know that they are lying to you, or something like yeah. that. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a hall of mirrors, which is yeah. something that get, gets uh, mentioned several times in, in the film. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, end of the day, I feel like the, the person that was doing the final edit wasn't really all that interested in making the plot make super sense, but was just making the, the movie as dramatic as possible and ending yeah. with the the you know really the emotional finale of the film isn't uh even though it's like the main plot the main finale is like we got Philby but that's like wah the emotional finale is rainbow getting killed or killing yourself right exactly and, and so somebody in the editing department felt like it was more important for that to be the last thing in the movie instead of happening right before the washington scene right yeah in that way, for dramatic effect. Yeah, so I, I think you might be right about the cuts. And now we're going to talk about Yevgeny. Yevgeny is a character that uh, basically uh, he's a what do you call this guy? I mean, he's a he's a KGB spy for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, what is there a term that we should be using for someone that's like? He's he's undercover in the U.S. He's not a sleep... Well, he's kind of a sleeper agent. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I would probably call him a cutout. Uh, he's basically a middleman f uh, for information. I'm so, sorry. Is, uh, is a cutout a spy term? Yeah. Uh, that's basically... Yeah, it's, I think it's a, call, a cutout. It's basically a person that separates uh, the chain of information. That way, people can't be implicated. So, like... 
if I'm the guy collecting the information and I got to get it to headquarters, there's usually a media uh, intermediary between me and headquarters. And it could be a, sev- a chain of several people, but that's what he is. He's getting information and sending information and then receiving information and sending information, you know, Right. Uh, he's set right. up he set up like a sleeper agent is someone that um like just is put in place and like waits for like a long, long time until they need to be activated, right? Right. And Yevgeny um, so is more like um he gets told that, you know, just stay in place, keep your cover. You're a liquor, you're you you work in you deliver uh wine, right? Yeah. And um, you might go a year without getting instructions. You might go months. Just here and there, there's something that we'll need you to do. Right. And um, you're right. Like, mostly his role seems to be, like, as an intermediary to uh, to keep parties distant from each other. For instance, he ends up being uh, the, the person that interacts with Philby. Sometimes he delivers instructions to Philby. Well, Sometimes he was actually put... He was actually put into America after the news of uh, the CIA figuring out there was a mole came out. So uh-huh. I think they put him in place so that they could send information to Philby. Because Philby, being the mole, is just sending information he's getting to Russia. But there's no way for them to get him information quickly. So, and this, this all occurs in the U.S., and and so uh, you know, I, I don't think we ever see Philby outside of the U.S. I guess maybe he's like an MI6 liaison. Well, yeah, he's, he's an MI6 agent, like on the surface, you know. But that's that's he just hangs out with, uh, you know. He probably got, he probably told the MI6 that he's homies with Angleton and that, that he can, yeah, he could be like a liaison for the MI6 to the CIA. So that's that's probably what his official. I guess uh, uh, responsibilities are quote unquote. When in reality, he's like sending information to Russia. Right. He definitely has a home in Washington because that's where Yevgeny meets him from time to time. Right. And and he's meeting for dinner like every week with Angleton. Right. And presumably, he's not flying back and forth from London to Washington just to have dinner. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so enough about that, though. Let's talk about Yevgeny. Um, he's a uh, oh he's. I don't know if this is going to become important later in the series, but early in the movie, we had a scene where Jack gets recruited into the CIA, and before Jack gets recruited into to, to the CIA, we see him at Yale, and he's got two friends, uh, one of which is Yevgeny. Yep. And, and while Jack gets recruited into the CIA, uh, Yevgeny, while I believe visiting his home, Russia, uh, to attend a funeral, I think of his father... Oh, yeah, because we don't see the dead. Right. I think oh, that's... That's probably what he's there for, is the funeral. That's when the Russian spymaster, Starik, recruits him into the KGB. He lets him know, your father... You didn't. You never knew this your whole life, Yevgeny, but your father worked for me in, in the KGB. I'm a KGB general, and I'm offering you an opportunity to join the ranks. And they. I do like the fact in this movie, and I like this in the Americans, too, that they paint 
the Russian perspective on what they're doing and what their mission for the world is in very egalitarian terms. Yeah. They really do seem to think that their way of life is better and that they're saving the world. They're not trying to dominate. What they're really doing is trying to dominate the world. But what it honestly believes that all the way up to the higher, highest, highest levels of the that, Communist Party. Yeah, that they're spreading the love of communism and that they really believe this and they're, they're doing God's work at this point. You know, like... <laughs> right. So even though in some movies uh, the, the KGB agent might be seen as, you know, this uh, underhanded villain. Uh, we really, I mean, we really have sympathy for Yevgeny. We like him. He's my favorite character in the movie. F- flat out. I love this guy. And, and, and later in the miniseries, he gets really cool. Uh, you know, uh, we get like, for this, we don't get a whole lot of very much tradecraft from him. It's like, you know, he's breaking codes and stuff. Uh, and and his training, we get like a montage of him shooting stuff and kicking things. and like We, we get a... We get a pretty cool montage. Yeah, they teach him. They teach him how to shoot. They teach him how to fight. They teach him how to hide stuff. They teach. Yeah. Him, they tell him that uh, when he's undercover, he's even gonna like make love differently than yeah. the way he makes love when he's uh, uh, in his other alternate personality. It's great. Right. I love it. Yeah, it, and it, the actor is good. Yeah, he's a really good actor. I, but, I was uh, disappointed. I was disappointed when I looked him up that that he's not in as much stuff as I think he deserves to be based on this performance. All of the right. scenes in this in this movie are very good. Very very good. And uh yeah, we don't but, you know, for his his character, most of his characters like I guess development is spent on him and the girlfriend. Um because the tradecraft we get from him is just Showing up, picking up envelopes, decoding stuff, and then dropping off like information for stuff. Oh man, uh, I, I think I think you're selling the tradecraft short on this, but but I'm, I'm gonna be happy to talk about it in a minute. Um, but oh, yeah, I mean, I, he's a really important person, but like it's all pretty much set in motion. He's not like playing chess or anything. He's just kind of following like the protocols. I see what you mean, and so, yeah. you know, it, it comes up from time to time when I talk when I use the word tradecraft. Maybe you and I are not talking about the exact same thing because it all it seems it seems like you're some of the some of the stuff we're about to talk about that Yevgeny does is very elaborate. It's oh. very elaborate spy stuff. Yeah, but it, but he's not playing chess. He's Star- not fucking with people's heads. Yeah, and and, he, and no, I agree with you. He has tons of tradecraft. He's a but soldier. Like it's, what he does, yeah, he's following protocol. He he listens to the radio. He, he gets the message, he follows the instructions, and he go and does the thing. But, like, he's he's not, like, putting in barium meals like our boy Tariq. <laughs> right. He's but, not planning out this huge, elaborate mole plan like Staric is, he's, you know. He's, right, right. He's absolutely not central to the plot. He could have easily been plugged in with a generic KGB agent that we don't know or care anything about. But like you said, he's going to become more interesting later in the series. And uh, I got a question for you. Uh, Now, so I mentioned that um, Jack and Yevgeny are old friends from Yale. Yeah. Obviously, they're no longer in contact with each other. Right. He he went back to the motherland. The thing is, is, 
Yevgeny spent a lot of time in the state and sounds like an American. Um, he talks like an American. He understands their thing. And this is primarily why he's so valuable to Stark. Because when he comes back home to Russia, they're like, you talk like an American. We should, we should take advantage of this. You know? he, also, he also speaks like three other languages. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's an excellent uh, placement. So, as you said, Yevgeny gets put in place. So, obviously, or not obviously, but presumably, they picked his station of deployment to be close to Philby. And like you say, that's shortly after that first barium, or it's at least after the extraction. And I think it's after the first barium meal. Right. Um, but he's just supposed to be in place and just to chill there, right? Uh, and But he does get in his instructions. Um, he gets it from a dead drop. Woohoo, dead drops. We love dead drops. Yeah, uh, we do. He gets his first dead drop of codes from a dumpster marked with a big X. Yeah. <laughs> did you catch the X? I did catch the X, yeah. Nice, yeah. That was, I mean, I only caught it after like my third viewing or something, but when yeah. I did catch it, I was like, okay, wah, wah. <laughs> Minus five points. Minus five points for that, but so many plus five points for everything else that happens here. Yeah. He sets up he sets up his radio and he gets his orders to deliver items to Philby. Yeah. And those items like it was a bunch of weapons and like listening devices and also in further instructions. Sure, which we're not sure what the items are supposed to be. It's just supposed to be to establish that Yevgeny is the guy that uh, is an intermediary, a way for them to get stuff and information to Philby and information from Philby. Here's another bad edit, I think. Um, when Yevgeny first meets Philby, Philby passes the information to Yevgeny that Tariti in Berlin knows that there's a mole at MI6 and might even know that it's me. Which would be bad. Right. And he does so very meaningfully. But this happened after the church ambush. Again, I think it would have made more sense if we'd seen this before the church ambush. But at this point, um, I think for dramatic effect, the, the editor didn't want us to know that Philby was the mole before we saw the church ambush. They wanted us to see the church ambush. And then... You know, dramatic reveal, the scene where Yevgeny delivers stuff to Philby is mainly a, a cinematic device to tell us, the audience, yes, Philby is the mole. Right. Even though the characters don't know it yet, now we, the audience, are let in on that secret. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, but... So let's talk, about, let's talk about how the chain... Uh, I want to talk about the chain of events. It's so deliciously elaborate of yeah. how he gets his information. Yeah. He's he a really cool tradecraft. Yeah. He sets up, once he's set up in Washington, he sets up his big radio antenna and he's got a big radio set. Yeah. Uh, which, which you often see in older spy movies. And so I'm, I'm guessing, um, you know, like, 
he's he's not setting up to just receive like the transmissions of the local radio stations and rock and roll. He needs a powerful radio set that will actually capture uh, radio signals from Russia. Right. Well, I don't know that he's picking up radio signals from Russia in the, the U.S. I think there's a Russian game show, radio show in the U.S. that he's listening okay, to. Okay, that, that's totally plausible. But notice, like, his, his radio set is elaborate. Yeah, he's got a serious radio set. Yeah. It's not just like a, a radio that you just have to listen to music. It's a radio that, that yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. You, you sit at it, you hunch over it, you, you tweak little dials, many dials, and like kind of tune in on the signal, and you listen with big fucking cans on your head. Um, but anyways, so he listens to the broadcast, and what I think is interesting here, uh, he listens to the, what, well, here's what we see. We see him listening to the broadcast, and there's a quiz show, and the answer to the quiz uh, relates to Alice in Wonderland. Right. And then he start he he perks up, grabs a pen and starts writing or getting ready to write. Right. And uh this isn't explained in the movie, but uh from the wiki we get that his code names um are not his code names, but his cover names are Eugene Dodgson and uh-huh. Gene Lutwidge. Now I wouldn't know that I wouldn't have known this at all except for checking the wiki, but Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, his real name was Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. Oh, so that's where they got the last names from. Right. So this would pertain to we're not sure what Yevgeny's code name is. It's never said, but his code name might have been like Lewis Carroll or some something. But what I'm saying is like he's meant to be tied into the, the the notion of Alice in Wonderland. And here's how I think this works. The Russians have many agents in place that are all listening to the same broadcast. Right. And if you're... and But what you're supposed to do as this Russian agent is you're supposed to listen to the quiz show answer. And if the quiz show answer pertains to you, then the following information is for you. All the other agents would have been listening to the same broadcast, and as soon as they heard the quiz answer, they would say, okay, that's not for me. The next Absolutely. thing... Absolutely. Right. Every time that he starts writing down, it's the same answer. You know, it's just the quiz show, they ask a question, and the answer is Alice in Wonderland. It's only it's when the... Yeah, only when the answer pertains to Alice in Wonderland that he suddenly, like, perks up. And uh, the next thing they do is give out the lottery numbers, which he furiously scribbles down, right? Yeah. Uh, Those lottery numbers seem to translate to a phone number. He calls the phone. That gives him instructions to meet at a park bench. (laughs) It's our second park bench. Um, He sits down and uh, uh, picks up a package. From another guy that's sitting, you know, two spies sitting at a park bench. I, yeah. I, I set my bag down. You pick it up and walk away. Park bench. <laughs> he picks up the package. Okay, so we, we went from radio signal to code to give him some numbers, which gave him a phone number, which gave him instructions to meet at a park bench 
to pick up a package. He's not done yet. No. He's then, he's then supposed to go to a very specific book in a library at a very specific time in which there's another phone number, a code phrase, and a torn piece of jello packaging. Yep. This is almost starting to seem like too much, but I love <laughs> it. I fucking love yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, actually, when I think about it, there's so many places along this chain that it could break down. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. If he makes, like, one small mistake, it's it's over. Right. But uh, um, the, the torn piece of jello packaging, you, you hit this one. What's so fucking cool about that? Well, with the jello, he actually, it's a torn piece of jello, and it actually fits another piece. Which is held by? Uh, Philby. Philby. Yeah, he takes it to Philby. The jello packaging matches. And uh, it's kind okay. of like they're... Yeah, so in, in the book in the library, he got the phone number. He apparently got the code phrase to call and ask about a car that Philby is supposedly selling. Yeah, yeah. He was like, uh, it was like a classified ad of like, yeah, I heard you're selling this car. I was wondering if I could go take a look at it. And when they match those two torn pieces of jello packaging, because, you know, they, they tore it in two and Philby has one, Yevgeny has the other, or it's delivered to Yevgeny. And that's per a perfect, beautiful, beautiful fucking confirmation that's better than any code phrase right right yeah basically this is verifying eugene's uh Evgeny's identity you know which which philby. goes to show like just how much the russians want to make sure that philby is protected yeah they're going through leaps and bounds to make sure he's okay the next time Evgeny shows up in the movie it's another very similar scene he's getting more orders he receives a package Mm -hmm. contents of the package are unknown and this occurs right after it, in case it, it matters you know in case you're looking to say everything's supposed to mean something and the timing is right even though we think the editing of this movie is kind of kind of shit <laughs> on, on, on close examination but yeah. if you're like trying to follow the the logic of the movie and the timing very closely uh he gets these orders right after compromised rainbow is put back in the field it also happens immediately before borisov propositions jack in the nightclub so if we're trying to figure out what this uh package and these orders mean it should pertain somehow to operation rainbow i think absolutely um we do the same kind of thing, you know, with the decoding and stuff and the radio and the listening and Alice in Wonderland using the lottery numbers as a code. Uh, we get a little more detail here, though. Um, this time, he has to run the code that he got from the lottery numbers. He has to match them or he has to write them and then also write down underneath them in a slightly uh, uh, offset column. He writes down the serial numbers of a $10 bill. And then he does some maths to come up with the actual code. And that's the phone number. That's, again, yeah, that's the phone number. Which gives him the location of a dead drop. <laughs> and the dead drop sends him to another park bench. <laughs> 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 
before we go further, I want to say too, there's uh, something tricky about the $10 note that he got. It was uh, somebody had written on it to Eugene on his eighth birthday. Love. Love Dad. Well, um, Yevgeny is actually Russian for Eugene. You brought that up. I love that. I love that uh, specific okay. thing. Although, um, minus five spy points. Minus five spy points for the KGB. Why would they do? If you're going to make Yevgeny, if you have a guy named Yevgeny, that you're going to send him to the U.S. to pose as an American, why would you have him use the American version of his Russian name as his cover name? Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of silly. That's minus but five points for the case. It's probably just a cinematic Easter egg. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. I like it. Yeah. Um, and I also like the fact, like, the thinking about the note, what's what's written. I mean, the, the movie, Keep just, just in case it's not clear, audience, I want to specify. We noticed this by, like, aggressively pause framing <laughs> the movie. This note on the $10 bill is not something that is like presented to the audience as a major plot point. Yeah. But, be yeah. but, but because we are the guys who watch too much, <laughs> we're like freeze framing and we're thinking about this $10 bill. We went through this scene so many times trying to break this code and we thought it was subtraction, but then there's all these random other numbers. I think they just kind of like threw some numbers together and made it look like he was doing it. I think they told him to write something or maybe it was supposed to be subtraction, but then the actor halfway through was like, I don't know, just thinking about something else and just started writing yeah. numbers. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I love, okay. So the idea of the $10 bill though, what this means to me, I think is you could drop one of these dead drops or something or, or a lost $10 bill Actually, I think it's because it should have been like it, it was probably like more money than this, like maybe a little packet of money, right? Uh -oh. A packet of like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks in tens. If some random person finds this, they're just gonna think, "Oh, I found some money." Might be mob money. Maybe I'm not supposed to pick it up, but uh, you know, maybe I will. And if there's a birthday note written on one of them, doesn't mean anything to me, right? Right. Exactly. If a CIA agent finds this money, are they looking through and, and noticing that somebody scribbled something on, on, you know, it's just a little birthday note. It doesn't mean Yeah, anything. right. But with that information, they wouldn't be able to suss any, figure anything out. They would have to know everything else behind that message. Um, also, right. And also, it's to Eugene on his eighth birthday. So how could that... Yeah, that shouldn't apply to uh, Yevgeny, or well, even though he's using the the cover name Eugene, because Eugene is not, or Yevgeny yeah, is not eight fucking years old. Right. But but Yevgeny, looking through this money, uh, would know that this was important to him. Or maybe maybe even it's even more elaborate, like than that. And he goes to a store to buy something. And that's an agent at the cashier, another Russian agent that is meant to make sure he gets this $10 bill in change. <laughs> With which he can go home, listen to the radio, listen for his code name, write down the lottery numbers, decode from the $10 bill, turn that into a phone number, get the instructions to go to a dead drop. The dead drop then 
sends him to again, again, please. I'm gonna. I, we already called this one out, but I'm gonna call it out one more, more time. A park bench. <laughs> he sits down next to a guy. They do a code phrase spoken in Russian, from which he gets another package. I'm gonna. I'm gonna mention this. Even though I loved this, it doesn't mean anything. We never find out what the package was. What yeah, that particular package, we just presume is more information or more items that Philby might need or something. It, it, could, be, it could be anything. doesn't fit into the plot whatsoever. And that's the main reason we kept this, all this Yevgeny stuff to the end of the podcast. Because if we had interspersed it in with the actual plot, it would have been highly confusing. But we're not going to do a, a, a podcast about spy movies without discussing all these Yevgeny scenes. 100%, right? Yeah, 100%. But, um, yeah, finally, I mean, Yevgeny uh, uh, visits Philby. We see him visit Philby when it seems like the heat is on. And uh, finally, Yevgeny is the Russian agent who makes the final preparations for Philby's flight from the United States. And that's Yevgeny. All right, so David, do you think uh, we're ready to come in from the cold now? Absolutely, let's do it. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. So I'm going to start by saying that I liked this movie. And I'm, I'm much more keen. Uh, okay, now it's time. I'm really actually going to call it what it is. The first episode of a three-part television miniseries by TNT. I liked it. I really enjoyed watching it uh, uh, several times in preparation for this podcast. Uh, you were the one that brought this to my attention uh, in the first place. Not, And this is like last year. Long yeah. started thinking about doing a podcast. But, uh, yeah, but we were already, like, kind of had, like, decided that we were, like, bros in the army of people that like spook films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you were jazzed about this one. And, and we watched, I remember we watched it together. Uh, I think we watched the second episode together, and then I kind of faded out on it. But now I'm, I'm, I'm more excited about watching the, the other two than I was at the time. Um, now that we've kind of like picked it apart, yeah, it's it's good Cold War stuff. It's got some really good performances from Molina and Keaton. Um, a a great performance from the guy that plays Yevgeny. I thought it's very deliciously Cold War. It's like it it ticks out like it scratches that itch if you just like the Cold War and you like spy yeah. stuff. This this movie's got a bunch of good stuff to it. Um, do I need to see it again? Probably not. I mean, I've just watched it like probably four times in the last two weeks. <laughs> it's it's flawed. I think it's massively flawed in the edit, but but I don't think that that reads unless you've watched it religiously like multiple times, which probably a lot of people are not going to. I think it's a it's a it's a mediocre movie pushed up 
a bit by its uh, its uh, nice representation of of Cold War spy stuff, and pushed down a bit by the editing. I'll go with a. I'll go with a. Oof, I almost want to say three, but I think I'm going to finally go with a two and a half. Nice. <laughs> um, for me, uh, funny enough. I mean, well, this is, I think the second time we watched it together, and then we've we've watched it a couple times in the last couple of weeks to go back and look at stuff. I always really, really liked this movie, and I thought it was top notch. But in, but when you started picking up on the timeline and looking at the events that happened, and discovered this editing kind of mess where things didn't start started to not make sense, that really like put me down on. Uh, what I felt about this film because I was super jazzed about watching this again and I really enjoyed watching it again but when we went and nitpicked everything because there was so much good tradecraft the story is really good you know it's a typical mole story but like you know it was executed really well but as we start nitpicking at the timeline I realized wow hold on this a lot of this stuff doesn't add up so uh, for the most part I really enjoyed the film but finding out that there's like these cinematic edits just to kind of make it a better movie like and like just kind of disregarding like the timeline tradecraft um i'm I'm gonna have to drop it down and i I think i'm gonna go with a three on this one because i really enjoy watching it it's so much fun but then when you find out it's kind of like when you learn the secrets of stuff like the magic goes away you know uh, it's just it's it's it feels a little disrespectful to people that like to pay very close attention to right. to the plot. Right. And if you're making a movie about the Cold War and about hefty like tradecraft, that's not that's, that's yeah, that's probably your audience. Yeah, and and you're not really doing it right, you know. But he also has to they have to have to sell the film and like make it marketable and like put a story together so i mean i get it it was just it was just really disappointing for me because i would i would have given this like a four and a half like if you asked me a year ago but coming back to it i was like super jazzed and i was like yeah i love this you know i'll tell you i'll tell you there's there's two ways there's two ways this movie could bump up from the two and a half to a three for me (laughs) number one is pos this just a possibility that has crossed my mind after i've seen episodes two and three if they all fit together very nicely i might be like i feel like maybe the overall series is better than this episode we'll have to see you know like if we ever if we ever do this again and nitpick the hell out of like episode two and three if they have the same flaws you're still staying at a two and a half for the whole series but if the overall series doesn't have these these editing mistakes then it's definitely a three Here's another way I think it could have been a three. If you wanted, if you really, really wanted to do these editing things, do that thing where you show the day and time yeah. of a scene. That way, if you wanted to jump back and forth, I'm not saying you go full Pulp Fiction on the bitch, right? Yeah. I'm not right. saying you break it all open. But, like, if you want to, like, show me this thing and then... Because you already demonstrated that you were willing to do that a little bit. Your very first scene starts in 1955. The second scene of the movie 
it says on the screen four years earlier right. in Washington, 1951. That's when we see them in Yale. So you, you already have demonstrated a willingness to do a little bit of manipulation with the timeline. If you wanted to, for instance, show me the church ambush and tell me that that happened on a Thursday, right? Mm -hmm. And then show me Yevgeny getting the information from Philby that Tariti is a problem, but you tell me that that happened on Wednesday. I'm perfectly fine with the fact that you showed them to me in the, the opposite order of chronology because you explicitly stated it. Yeah. So that's another way. It could easy way it could have easy way it could have been a three. You do both of those together and I'm 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 a three and a half. Yeah. yeah about, I, I, I mean from watching it before, I, I know that it gets much more intense, but I don't know how tight it is. But yeah, definitely should get back on talking about this after you finish the last two episodes. Is that that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, we might we might bring it back in. We might bring it back in in a future episode. So we've reviewed the movie, uh, you know, uh, as 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 a a piece of art, a piece of entertainment. But we also like on this podcast to go in and give the tradecraft detailed rating, and um, that's a, what we call a redaction rating. And on our way into that, we like to give our top three best and worst tradecraft movies. Uh, sorry. Moments of the movie. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with my top three best or my number three out of three. Best tradecraft moment. The Borisov nightclub offer. We talked about it in in detail. Uh, yeah. yeah. That was fun. I loved it. I loved it because it was something that we had fun piecing out together, like why this would make sense and how it worked out whether Jack accepted the deal or declined the deal, either way, the KGB benefits. So that's my number three. Well, mine was uh, the, the uh, Tariti's guys immediately following Rainbow to go bug her apartment and verify the information. I think that was, you know, pretty much uh, Tradecraft 101 right there. And, and, I, and I think it was great that they put that in the movie that it wasn't just like, here, we're getting information, that they actually went out of their way to verify that information. I like that one, too. And it was also kind of, it was a cute scene because they had to, um, uh, they're on an upstairs apartment, and there's a lady that lives downstairs who never leaves her apartment. Yeah. And, and so they had to do this little mini-op where yeah. they figured out a way to get her out of the apartment, which they basically offered her, like, free medical care so yeah and and when she's still doubtful about it they offer her a new radio <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very cute um my number two uh once again this is something we talked about uh in detail so i won't have to talk about it too much here just the whole alice in wonderland codename thing on the radio that's uh that idea again it's it's I like it because it's something that I had to discover by carefully investigating the movie. Uh, it's not something the movie explicitly put in my face that there's many agents 
yeah that are that are listening to the same broadcast and right. they'll hear the right code name that pertains to them and that's when they need to start paying very close attention but when we watched that scene over and over it was very rewarding to figure that out and that's why that's my number two that's a good one um my number two is when the KGB found out about Rainbow, instead of killing her, they just flipped her. And they started using her to spread disinformation. Uh, I, I mean, again, some tradecraft on one, and I'm glad that they did it in a movie. You know, they didn't just... And, and they didn't make a really big deal about it. Like, it wasn't some huge scene. Like, the big deal was later we find out she was compromised the whole time. But just the idea of them not eliminating this person but using them to their benefit after they found out that she had been uh, giving out information. 100%. 100% agree, dude. And yeah. it's not the only instance. Like, this whole movie is probably, like, the best part of this movie is all the instances of when you find out what yeah. the enemy is doing, you yeah. don't immediately, like, jump on them and, like, right. shut that down. You instead try to figure out how you can twist it right. to your advantage. It's all about what you know that they think they know that you don't know. Right, right, Hall right. of Mirrors. Yeah, love it, love it, love it. Uh, here's another one I don't have to explain because we did it before. Jello package. That's yeah. just it's just the perfect it's the perfect validation. It's yeah. it's un even a, like an electronic like even in the modern age in 2019 you couldn't do better than this. Like, no. like a computer handshake, like a computer code or a code phrase or any kind of cryptogram. You could not fake the torn piece of packaging matching perfectly. It's fucking brilliant. That's my number one. I think, I think that was really clever uh, as to validate that, yeah, this is the person that's supposed to be here. Um, my number one is uh, the KGB planning a second mole. You know, for when they threw Philby under the bus. So the KGB figured out that Philby was uh, beginning, figured it, found out, and found out and that at some point they had to get him out of there to protect his life or save him or protect him from getting compromised. And they had a mole that they already had planted waiting there just for when Philby gets taken out. So I thought that was really cool. That was definitely like, they. Like, like KGB general playing chess against the CIA, where he's just like, "All right, we have to lose. We 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 are going to lose our mole, but it's okay. I have another one." So when the CIA are like, "Oh wow, the mole's gone," they won't know that there is another one that's like been running things already. Very so, good, very good. Why don't you? Uh, that's our that's our top three best tradecraft. Why don't you take the lead on uh, worst? So my number three worst is Jack falling in love with Rainbow. Ah! I, 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 I can't I mean, like, yeah, it's a spy movie. There's got to be a romance between somebody involved or whatever. I get it. It's there for cinematic reasons. I get it. It does happen in real life all the time, you know, where spies, like, leave because they fall in love with someone. And they, but it's just, come on, man. And it happens <laughs> so fast. Like he's in to love fair, with her. To, like, be fair, to, be fair, it, to be fair, it's his first not his not his first operation, but it's his first operation that he's uh handling. That's true, yeah. And he's a young buck at a college type of thing. He's Chris, he O'Donnell. Have he's Chris O'Donnell, he's gotta fuck something. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but I mean, they, I mean, that's just gonna put him in a bad position, and and it did, and uh, he learned the lesson that probably Torides learned several times in his life. So, my top, my number three for worst is Angleton telling Philby about the extraction at the beginning of the movie. Again, I think we talked about the fact that we don't know that Angleton was the leak specifically but in this movie he is the leak and it's just it's for someone that is set up and represented by this movie as being this super genius of counterintelligence he makes the single like most rookie mistake that should be the first thing you teach counterintelligence people not to do on day one of counterintelligence class what's your number three yeah, <laughs> you mean my number no, two. I'm sorry, your number two. Yeah, my number two is why they went to the opera to begin with. You know, like he's trying to establish this relationship with her, but why is he going out being seen with her when, like, this is a really sensitive like operation? Why? Not only did he fall in love with her, but like, why? Why are they going out to the opera dressed up all fancy and stuff? When he's when it's already established that he's been seeing her for information and stuff like that, they were, I just thought it was silly. But again, it's for the movie; it's telling the story. But I just thought I don't know. I, I would have never done that. If, even if you're gonna date your agent or whatever, I'm, I'm not going out to the opera with a bunch of people. We're gonna go meet at some discreet location on a park bench. <laughs> yeah. Dave. What about you? Dave. Dave. Yeah. yeah nah, nah. We can't we can't proceed. Let me tell you why. Okay. I now suspect you've been compromised. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you why. Okay. Alright. And I've marked this time in the thing. Uh because it was the ballet, motherfucker, not the opera. Oh that's right. Oh, the f- and I'm gonna I'm gonna strip in audio from I'm going to strip in the audio from that scene right now. <laughs> That'll be great, yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. <laughs> oh. All right, no, you're, you're good. You're good. Yeah. But I'm doing that. Yeah, totally. My number two. Oh, my number two, Tarini telling Mr. Fussy, which is my, my little pet name for his London contact, that he arranges the barium meals uh, uh, with, which I don't mean that dismissively. I, I, I thought the, the, even though that guy's got like, what, exactly two scenes? He's got exactly two scenes, right? He's pretty cool in both of them. I liked him. Yeah, he, yeah I liked him a lot. He actually was one of my favorite characters. He's like, but so, he had, he had this little fussiness about him though. Yeah, he was you super know? fussy. He, was he seemed, he seemed annoyed. Like he seemed yeah. annoyed. Yeah. By anything that he needed to do related to spying, like he's he says he's what like two months from two retirement, years, two, two years, years from retirement. He does play it off exactly like a guy that is two years away from a British guy. He's very yeah, British. yeah very he British. He plays it off exactly like a British guy that spent his whole life doing this shit. And it's just fucking tired of it, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll report. He doesn't want to get shot or hurt or whatever. He just wants to finish off his years and go like, like he said, he wants to be drinking whiskey. But as I said before, and I don't remember the exact number, but I am deducting spy points from Tariti for 
telling Mr. Fussy about the barium meal plan right after he's confirmed that, and Mr. Fussy has confirmed to him that he is wearing a wire. So other people from MI6 could hear about it. So then, well, could hear about it. But again, uh, you know, maybe I got this one wrong because again, this first barium meal was only supposed to establish that someone at MI6 was a mole. So maybe I got that one wrong, but I'm still, it's still just, it felt wrong with me at the time. And uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change it right now. What's your number one? My number one was actually the same as your number three. Here's the head of counterintelligence telling Philby about the extraction the night before the extraction. Like, like, fine. You guys are buddies for 15 years and you guys want to talk and like go have dinner or whatever. All right, fine. But are you really going to tell the guy like the night before you have this like very just wait one day just just wait one day yeah just just wait till it was done and then talk to him about it later there was no per even if they share information let's pretend philby wasn't the mole and they share information and they're there's no reason for philby to know this it's not it's he's not getting there's there's such a thing as a need to know basis yeah and when you're talking about a possible mole in MI6, you know who's at the top of the not need to know list? MI fucking six. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm going number one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hitting it. Yeah. All right, what's your number one? I don't know if you remember this scene. We didn't talk about it. There's a lot, uh, you know, they, they did, uh, they, they mentioned like the Hall of Mirrors. They talk about the back and forth. I like Hall of Mirrors as a metaphor in this movie is very well done. Very well done. Like we talked about, like, like you don't, uh, you know, you, you, you present a certain thing. When you know something about what the other person knows, you don't let them know. You do something that it's just, it's so great. It's so complicated and wonderful. You know what's not wonderful is at the very beginning of, Operation Rainbow, on Jack's travel through Berlin to meet the ballerina, codename Rainbow, for the very first time, mm-hmm. he's being tailed. Do you remember this? I don't remember him being tailed. Yeah, he's being tailed by two classic, uh, what do you call it, casting call Russian thugs. <laughs> Fedoras, I'm not sure they had trench coats, but they did, they, 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 they they feel like they have trench coats for sure. Yeah. He ducks. He ducks into a little, a uh, little carnival, and he goes into the Hall of Mirrors, like the Fun House. Oh, that's right. I right. Forgot about that scene. And they get confused, and it's a little bit. I don't. What am I? What am I reaching for? It's a little bit. Okay. Uh, okay. Um. Cartoonish <laughs> is a yeah. word I could use. Um, it's literally like it's insulting. <laughs> it's fucking insulting. Like you know. It, anyways, he he escapes them. You know they're they're bumping into mirrors. They think they see where he is. Oh, they're moving this way. Oh, that's just a mirror. And he he gets away. And so he makes his rendezvous, his first rain rendezvous with Rainbow. Oh, without I forgot. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, no, this is pretty huggy. Oh, it's god awful. Um, yeah. So, and this is a case where, like, 
you know, because like worst tradecraft, it, it could be something a character does. It could be an accident, you know, that an agency does. It could be something that like just doesn't seem plausible that are done by the characters within the movie. Here, I'm giving number one worst tradecraft because, I mean, yeah, you could do that, but it's just I'm giving the the movie like yeah. like minus yeah. minus five points for yeah, putting no, it's just that so, piece of garbage in so our face. It's just so cliche, and you're right. It's very cartoonish that it's insulting. It's just kind of like, uh, you know, like like something that would happen in a Shirley Temple film. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, Bugs Bunny movie. I don't know. Let's give it. Let's uh, let's let's get to now that we've given all that. How redacted is this movie on a scale of one to five? Now, again, audience, a five. The, the, the premise here is that let's say this movie actually reflects real events, which a lot of it really does. If we're going to give this a high redaction rating, that means we think that most of the stuff in the real events were not reflected in the movie. If we give it a low redaction rating, that means we think we're looking at an open file. We're looking at legitimate intel of what really happened. And this is just a discussion part. We're going to come to a conclusion. I want to give this one. I'll just, I'll just, uh, you know, I'm going to go with a one. A one? No, no, a one. A one should be like absolute truth. Because, but we have fictional characters here. So yeah. I guess. I, I guess and, and Kim Philby being a mole was real, but I don't think most of these events actually. Like, I would probably put it at a two and a half. Because I'm thinking two tops. Two tops? Is, it does all deal with... Yeah, but some of the tradecraft's a little hokey. Yeah, all right. Two and a half. Two and a half. Sold. Yeah. No, because my whole thought is like, yeah, a lot of these characters are real. Yeah, Kim Philby was a triple agent or double agent. Yeah, stuff like this probably did happen. But I don't think any of these are actual, most of these weren't actual events. I don't even know that Rainbow and Sniper existed. There probably was an operation where the professor was giving information to the CIA. But, like, you know, most of this stuff isn't historical. It just happens that they used historical characters. So that's why I'm saying, like, a two and a half. Because it's very realistic tradecraft, you know. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of good, juicy tradecraft to bite into. For yeah. sure, yeah. I'll I'll go with you. Let's call it a two and a half. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You know, find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever. You listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.